Jeremiah. We've been in Jeremiah for a minute, and uh, I've enjoyed being in the book of Jeremiah, honestly. I've enjoyed uh, immersing ourselves in, uh, in, in the life of Jeremiah, and, and I don't know what you've done, but I mean, I plan quite a far, quite, quite in advance, and so I've already read all the way through and kind of know where this is going, and so uh, if you haven't, I encourage you, you know, go ahead and read. You don't have to Stay with us. Go ahead and read ahead if you want to figure out the end of the story, or maybe you've read it before and you know. But Jeremiah's life is fascinating. And, and by and large, when you synopsize it, he is reminding us that we sometimes, or we more often than not, slide into these dull moral habits in our faith where uh, we start taking uh, our walk with Christ for granted. And Jeremiah shakes us out of these things where he reminds us that we've been called to move and to follow and to, to, to be guided and directed by God. And we don't settle, we don't stop, we don't set up camp and just say this is where we live now, where God keeps calling us to follow him at a deeper level. And this morning we're going to look at Jeremiah 7, chapter 7, verse 1 through 4. Uh, but before we read it, I want to bring some context to uh, the scripture for those that aren't familiar with the story and history. In context, uh, Jeremiah uh, is coming in on the heels of King Manasseh. King Manasseh was the worst king uh, the Hebrews had ever seen. He reigned for 55 years, and for uh, the better part of his time, he did nothing but uh, bring evil and, and filth and, and vile things into the region. Uh, it was a dark and evil half century where uh, things like uh, pagan worship and orgies and shrines and uh, wizards and sorcerers were commonplace Murders were always taking place. It was violent and it was evil. And, and, and the, the culture in which uh, King Manasseh had created allowed all of these things to transpire in and outside of the temple. And it was just this common culture of evil and, and, and violence. And it's interesting to me that Jeremiah is born in the last decade of King Manasseh's reign. Where in the last ten years of Manasseh's reign and all this evil, Jeremiah is uh, infused into the world. And I don't know what you know about uh, culture and its effect on us, but we're all dramatically affected by the environment that we're in. If you were raised in a, a, a farm area, a rural area, the high chance of you being a farmer or being in ag was uh, common. Uh, if you were born in a, a, a rural uh, central setting, maybe in a city, it would be common for you to, to work in a city. And if you were raised in Kentucky, you probably smoke. There's this idea that when we're in a culture, things just sort of, infuse themselves in us. And it matters where you live. And it matters the, the culture and the time frame that you live in because it has an effect on us. And for Jeremiah, it would have been very easy for him to be an evil. If he's grown up around all of these things, it would be easy for him to be a byproduct of his society. And yet, uh, through God's hand, he's led out of those things. Manasseh dies and his son Ammon takes over and, and everyone has high hope that everything's going to change. You ever had hopes in a president, hopes in a governmental leader that says, oh, things are going to change now? They didn't change. Ammon reigned for a short period of time before he was murdered, a product of his own making, and uh, all of a sudden his son Josiah takes over. Josiah is eight years old and becomes king. Now, many believe he wasn't making all the decisions. He was a figurehead, but regardless, Josiah comes in to reign, and he says, I'm going to change things. I'm going to turn this around. For, for uh, over a decade, uh, we've had uh, all of these, these problems, almost a century. We've had all this crime and, and, and problems and, and evil and sin. And he's like, I'm going to cleanse the temple. And he has these uh, big plans to get rid of evil. But getting rid of evil doesn't make people good. 
The reform that the king was trying to make was only on the surface. It wasn't seeking to change practices and habits or hearts. And Josiah, in all of his efforts to clean things up, really what he did was he caused people to say the right things in the right place, but they still weren't right themselves. That the facade of evil was gone, but the heart was still corrupt. The reform was necessary, but it it wasn't enough. And Jeremiah comes in to a time when the government was trying to regulate morality. And it's not enough for governments to regulate morality. Just because it's legal or illegal doesn't make it moral or immoral. The government, as much as we pray for Christian leaders, like the actual ones, not the ones that use it as a political tool, but actual Christian leaders who uh, live morally, if that's a thing, uh, and are a politician, it's not enough for us to hope that they come in and change laws to regulate our morality. That you and I aren't directed or dictated by the laws of, uh, of, of our land. We, we live by the scriptures. And just because something becomes legal or illegal doesn't mean that it becomes morally moral for us. And Jeremiah steps into this situation where there's a facade, a fakeness of good. But the root issue was still corruption. And in light of all of this, God speaks to Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord All you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. Now, Jeremiah's message was clear. Listen to the Lord. Hear the Lord. His word is heeding, uh, is giving us a warning. Heed this warning. Do as God says. Listen up. And it's so interesting in our lives how often we need someone to remind us that we've become tone deaf to the word of the Lord. We become numb and blind to biblical morality. We've settled into a pattern of living that we feel like is okay. And, and just because we feel like it's okay, we've told, told ourselves that we are okay. And, and Jeremiah is being called to stand in front of people and call them out for their immorality. It's a warning sign. Now, I'm not great at recognizing warning signs. I have a service engine light soon on my truck that's been there six months. It's probably fine. It runs fine, sounds fine, it's smooth, uh, but it's there. I'll probably need to clear it and see what happens. But uh, until you really notice a problem, it's not a problem, right? Nothing's ever a problem until you recognize it as a problem. That we have warning signs in our lives that trigger us to go, okay, maybe I should take a look at this. Maybe I should dig deep into this. Maybe something's not as it should be. But for so many of us, we keep ignoring those things, or even worse, we try to fix it ourselves. I was uh, standing in the kitchen yesterday, and I heard, I knew I had purchased uh, something from a, a store with a paper bag, and it had a handle, and I'd left the bag in the, in the dining room next door, and I was in the kitchen, and I knew the cat, Roman's cat, uh, was in the house, and it was playing in the bag, and it was making like normal playing sounds, and then something happened that can only be described as like cat chaos. Uh, I knew something was wrong, right? And if you have a cat, you know, there's like that, they're playing, and then they're not playing, something's wrong, and uh, all of I saw, I turned and I just saw this bag, just the bag, go streaking across the kitchen towards the cat door. And the cat goes through the door. Half the bag stays inside the house. The other half still wrapped around him with the handle. And he's running out the garage. And I go chase after him, trying to call for him. And he runs into the woods. He's got half the bag tied around his neck. And he's in the woods. And I'm trying to call for him. No one else in my house seemed to care. And so I'm like, maybe it's fine. 
Uh, and so I gave it a few minutes. It starts raining. And I could tell the cat was out there. And, you know, cats don't like rain. None of us do. And, and, and he stayed out there. And all of a sudden, it starts, like, raining. And uh, he starts coming back really slowly, completely sopping wet. He has this thing wrapped around his chest now. He's having a little trouble breathing. And he comes in the house, and he sits down, and he falls over, which he does often. And I can't get this thing off the cat, so I have to cut it off the cat. And I'd never related more to a cat in my entire life. We get stuck, and we get in trouble. And instead of going to the source to get help, you and I go off to try to take care of things on our own. And we only make things worse. And it's only when we humble ourselves, we come back to the cross, and we say, I've sinned, I've messed up, I've done something wrong, and I need help that we actually find assistance. And what Jeremiah is doing is he's seeing all of this unfold before it happens. He's seeing the cat before it comes and gets in the bag and starts playing, and he's saying, don't do that. But see, when you and I hear warnings from the Lord that says, hey, don't even mess with that, we go, yeah, but maybe we can. What if we just try a little bit? What if we just get in the bag? You know, just play around a little bit. It'll be fine. And we lie to ourselves so often that we're okay. We don't heed the warning of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Come and stand in the gates. That I think it's interesting that God's word to Jeremiah is to tell him to go stand in the gates of the temple. If you are given uh, a message to go take to someone uh, that, that's preaching against morality, immorality, and you're saying, you've got to go call people back to Christ, the first thing you would do is we go, well, I'm going to go find a bar, right? I'm going to go find uh, the, the casino. I'm going to go find a, a rough neighborhood. I'm going to go take this message to where really people are rough, Jeremiah wasn't called into the saloons and the bars and the uh, brothels and the hard places. Jeremiah was called to the gates of the temple. He was called to the lobby of the church to tell the people as they come in, there's sin in your life and you need to repent. Stand to the gates of the temple. This is a public declaration. Declare publicly to the people coming to church, not the city, not the, the slums. And we often think the world needs to change, and it does. We get on Evansville Watch. We see the news. We see uh, in, in America specifically what's happening, mass shootings and all this crime. And we look at the world, and we go, man, the world needs to change. We don't realize that change starts here. That if we can't call sin outs in the church... If we can't work on and, 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 and try to rep call to repentance the people that meet and gather under Christ's name, then we have no business going out into the world and calling people to repentance. That we're quick to warn others all the while ignoring the sin in our own lives. And the reality is we buy the lie that we're fine. We do. We buy this lie that we're okay. We think that we know it all. We've heard it all. And, and while walking through life, we live with the lie that we would never fall for whatever God is warning us against. I'd never fall for uh, an adultery or an alcoholism or in drugs or uh, pornography or gossip or whatever. I'd never fall for that. And God's going, heads up, we're all susceptible. We're all sinners and thought, word, deed, and action in need of grace. And we need Jesus to guide us and direct us through the Holy Spirit. And we're going, no, we're fine. That's not me. While walking through life, we just keep saying, God's not talking to me. He's talking to you. He's talking to the people out there. He's talking to everybody else. But Jeremiah was sent to the temple doors. In verse 3, it says, this is what the Lord of the hosts says. The God of Israel says, correct your ways and your deeds. And I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. 
Instead, if you really change your ways and your actions, if you act justly towards one another, if you no longer oppress the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods bringing harm upon yourself, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to you, your ancestors long ago. The word of the Lord that Jeremiah is called to present to the temple gates was for the people of Judah. It was for them. But I don't think we're too dissimilar, you and I. There are people who gather all over our city, all over our country, really all over the world in the name of God. With sin in our hearts, living immorally. I think that we could find ourselves in this area, in this time, and it would look very much like it is here where we have people who live any way we want outside the church, and then we come in here thinking that this is what makes us holy, but the church cannot and will not save you. The church cannot and will not make you holy. I love a community of faith, and I like this one a lot, and I like doing life together, and I think this is important, and what we do here matters, and the songs we sing are critical, and the first song we sang this morning, Taylor wrote. So it's a very beautiful uh, community of faith that we're uh, creating together. But this church won't save you. We have to fall on our knees before Christ because it's only Christ who forgives. It's only Christ who calls us back to him. It's only Christ who laid his life down for us. However, we do need to find in our, in our, uh, our attitudes and our posture that we've got to correct our ways many times. The first thing that Jeremiah is saying is that we have to correct our ways. We have to change the what. We have to change what we do. Jeremiah 7, 4 says, Do not trust deceitful words, chanting, This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really change your ways and your actions, if you act justly towards one another. Jeremiah is telling people, as they enter the church, to stop trusting deceitful words. To stop buying into the lies of society and culture and even religion. The deceitful words Jeremiah warns us against is this chanting of, I'm in the temple, I'm fine. Now we wouldn't say that we're in the temple. Even though I did have a, a, a name for our church originally before it was embraced, I wanted to call it the chapel because I thought it was more, I don't know, upstanding, uh, classy. But uh, embrace one over and it's a beautiful name and we're happy with it. We wouldn't say the temple, we wouldn't say chapel. But what he's saying is we would say church, I'm in church, I'm fine. We might say, I'm a conservative, I'm fine. I'm a Republican, I'm fine. I'm a Christian, I'm fine. The moment someone has to tell you they're a Christian is the moment you should be a little leery. I'm a Christian businessman, might mean you're going to get ripped off. I'm a Christian politician, it might mean they're going to cheat on you. We have used the word Christian in the title of being a Christian and a follower of Christ and a church member so often to, uh, to gain for self that we've devalued what that even means. The Bible actually talks about us living that out more than we talk about it. They should know that you're followers of me because of how you live. And yet we're so often content with titles and words to try to convey a certain level of trust with others. And the reality is we are these people in this room saying, I'm in the temple of the Lord so I must be fine. But none of these things make one right with God apart from true faith and apart from repentance. It doesn't change us. It doesn't save us. The church cannot help us. And religion is not a matter of arrangements or place of works. But it's a life of love and mercy and obedience and kindness. And the people of Judah believed that by going to church, they were safe. Why would we warn anybody coming into a church? I mean, today it's a Sunday, 1045. The weather's conducive for being home on a couch and sleeping. And why would we need to warn those people? You're the faithful. And what Jeremiah is doing, he's just saying, none of us are safe. From the lure of sin, 
None of us are safe from specifically the sin of mistreating others, that the church won't save you, but the church can call us back to morality. The church can be a place uh, where we hold one another accountable, where we sharpen one another with the way that we live our lives, but we're always being lied to. All of us constantly being lied to, and we have been for decades. We're lied to by media and government and church and people with bad intentions and people with good intentions. And, and now, maybe more than ever, it's been hard to find the truth. And one news outlet says they're the true source, and then the other says, no, they're not. We are. And none of us really know what to believe because we're so lied to, and it becomes subjective. Truth does. And, and lies have become harder to pinpoint. But the most deceitful words that we believe are our own. We're hyper-aware of when others are lying to us. We just are. We have a meter, a metric inside of us where someone's talking and we're like, you're probably not being truthful. We can sense that. We can feel that. But many times the lies we fall for come from our own thoughts and words. We have developed a worldview that ignores the truth and believes the lies. And the most convincing lies come from our own mouth. Our brain believes itself more than it believes anyone else. And we've all bought the lie that we're okay. We're okay Everyone else is in danger. Everyone else is living immorally. Everyone else's sins are tragic, but I'm okay. And Jeremiah wasn't warning people out in the community. He was warning people in the temple. And he wasn't telling people in the temple, go out and tell others. We would make, that would make sense for us. If we came today and we're like, hey, let's go tell the world that they're immoral. We'd go, well, it's great, let's go. But it's us, this message is for us. Jeremiah was telling people like us that we're not okay. And many of us, we've lived so long believing that we're fine, that we're good, maybe even great, that we no longer recognize the inward reality that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And it's not that we lie to ourselves intentionally many times. We're not malicious, but we lie to ourselves to protect ourselves from feeling guilt or shame or condemnation. That we're wanting to be happy. Our brains are wired. We want to be happy. Our, our brains develop a sense of happiness when we're absent of guilt and shame. And so this is more of a self-preservation mechanism that we have where we go, no, you're fine. It's not that big of a deal. I'm immersed in this sin. Yeah, but it's not fine. People sin worse. You're okay. I know you've said some things and done some things, but you're fine. And everything is someone else's fault. It's not my fault. This is a self-preservation mechanism that we have hardwired in us so that we're not to blame, so that we're not wrong, so that we don't do things uh, incorrectly, and we just constantly have this uh, image of self that is right, and we're not self-aware as human beings. It's actually really challenging to be self-aware, to realize how we hurt others or how we mistreat others or how we uh, live in a way that's ungodly, and, and really for us to step back outside of ourselves and look objectively at our morals and our thought life and our behaviors and our heart condition is very difficult. It's easier to see other people's, but it's hard to see ourselves, and we actively have to fight past our own opinions of ourselves to look deep inside of our souls to find areas of our life that are displeasing to God. And the mantra that we should all live with is, we're not perfect. I think we should remind ourselves on a daily basis that we're not perfect. We start sliding into the mentality that we're fine, that we're good. We're not perfect, though. We're only made Right through Christ, Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't rely on your own understanding. I like to rely on my own understanding, and then when that doesn't work out, trust the Lord. Or I like to rely on my own understanding and hope that God is going to reinforce my own understanding. And what the Proverbs are telling us is, we can't trust ourselves. So the moment we hear these words deep inside, you're fine, it's not that big of a deal, we should go, okay, that's my own understanding. 
That's me. What does the scripture say? Well, the scripture says we all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. What am I saying? I'm fine. You're not fine. We're not perfect. And often the situation that we're in is a direct result of trusting in our own understanding. I don't like the situation I'm in. What led you there was probably trusting in your own understanding. The culture that Jeremiah found himself in was a direct result of, of people trusting in their own truth, trusting in their own reality, trusting in their own understanding. And the moment we place our trust in God is the moment we stop relying on ourselves and our own understanding of truth. And that's when we begin to change the what. The what we do how we behave, how we treat one another. The second thing we have to correct is we have to correct our deeds. The why behind what we do. The why behind we what, what we do is just as important as the what we do. That a lot of us do a lot of things for God but become less like him in the process. Have you ever known people like that? We are doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And we're not bringing glory and honor to Christ. The why is just as important as the what, what we believe to be true, often informs why we act or why we respond or why we serve or why we give. And Jeremiah 7, 5 begins to describe what this looks like for us. Verse 5, instead, if you really change your ways and your actions, you act justly towards one another. Now we could spend the rest of the year just on that one phrase, act justly towards one another. I think we could create uh, sermon after sermon just pulling those words out, act justly towards one another. What does it look like for us just to treat one another like we want to be treated? A golden rule. What does it look like for us to act justly towards one another? He goes on, verse 6, you no longer oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. You no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods bringing harm on yourself. I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave you to your ancestors long ago and forever. Jeremiah tells them they need to change, and then he tells them exactly what needs to change. Change how you treat one another. Change how you treat the fatherless and the widow, the marginalized, and the broken, the destitute, and the voiceless. Stop shedding innocent blood. Stop serving other gods. See, talking about change is only the beginning. We have to intentionally decide that we want to change. A lot of us will entertain the idea of change. A lot of us will enter into a dialogue about what change looks like. A lot of us would really enjoy this intellectual uh, dialogue of, uh, of societal change and, and, and how we could implement changes without actually ever doing anything about it. We can even make a promise to change while continuing to live and to act and to move the exact same way. And we're really good about talking about the idea of change, but never actually making movements. And the reason is the outside is a lot easier to change than the inside. We can change our behavior for a day, for a week, if we're really working hard for a month. Going to church and saying all the right things is a lot easier many times than working out a life of justice and love among the people that you work and live with. Showing up to church once a week and saying a hearty amen, it's a lot easier than engaging in a life of daily prayer and scripture. I would actually argue that engaging in a life of daily scripture and prayer is easier than acting justly towards one another. In fact, if Christianity for me could just be about me and God, it'd be awesome. If I think back to the last few times I've been hurt over the years, it's always been other people. If I could create 
a faith that is just me and God where I just pray and I just read scripture and I just meditate and I just hang out with God all the time, but I never engage in life with other people, how wonderful would that be seeing a lot of our lives that's easier to live this way, to do the right moral thing, to do the right biblical thing. We can do all of those things and not love others and serve others and feel justified in our actions. But the behavior that Jeremiah is talking about, he's talking about human rights issues. He's talking about us no longer ignoring the reality that people near and far are being mistreated, marginalized, and poor. And I don't want to get political, but we can't ignore the behaviors that God is warning us against. He says, act justly towards one another. Stop oppressing the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Stop killing innocent people. That Jeremiah is advocating for compassion for fellow human beings. Whether that's near or far, whether it's people we agree with or disagree with, whether it's people that look like us or don't look like us. And, and I don't know how this fleshes out in today's political climate. And I don't know how we work this out. But I know that as followers of Christ, we should care deeply for everyone. It doesn't mean we condone behavior. It doesn't mean we justify or overlook bad behavior. But we care deeply for all mankind. And we have a lot of room to grow in this area, you and I. All of us. We are actively being conditioned to put self first. And we need to be reminded that this is anti-gospel. We have to act justly towards one another. Stop oppressing the fatherless and the widow, the marginalized and the destitute, the poor and the oppressed. God cares about how his people are treated, the weak and the defenseless in society. And he notices when these weak ones are oppressed instead of helped. He notices how we treat the people around us. And true repentance will extend into the way that we treat one another. If we're going to walk with Christ in thought, word, deed, and action, it's going to translate into how we behave around one another. But here's the thing. If we're going to be obedient to the scriptures and we're going to live the way that God has called us to live, there's going to be a reward. The beautiful thing about the scriptures and how God works is he's very clear in presenting our obedience, the direction, the directive, and the reward that goes with it. And the reward for the righteous is living eternally with God. For uh, Judah, the reward was that they could stay in their homes. They could live off their land. And if you read on, you know that God says, I'm going to send uh, another army, another country to come invade you and to eradicate you if you don't repent. He's saying, you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of pain and problems and heartache if you'll just obey. And we do this with our kids, Right? We want to teach them right and wrong, and, and we try to be very clear. This is what we'd like for you to do, and this is the reward that you get if you do it, and this is what we don't want you to do, and this is the punishment that will happen. And we give it, we say it, and then we follow up with it, right? And we don't just do this to create good uh, members of society who obey their laws and, and, and live well. We do this because we're helping them learn that God has expectations of us, and if we'll obey him, we'll be rewarded. But if we disobey him, there's a punishment in verse 7, God says, I'll allow you to live in this place, the land that I gave your ancestors. There's, there's always a blessing in obedience to God. However, there's also a punishment. The beautiful thing about God is that he spells it out very clearly. He's not ambiguous or vague. He's inviting you and I to live an obedient life, treating others justly, not ignoring the foreigner and the widow, and on and on, not creating violence in our hearts. And if we'll stop ignoring the ways that we do this, even so subtle, like we're not evil people in this room. I mean, I don't think anyone's outright evil. I don't know all of you, but I don't think anyone's outright evil. But it's very subtle. It's subtle how we see people and treat them, how we talk about them when they're not around. 
It's very subtle in our hearts. And just like rust, if we don't take care of it immediately, it'll start to expand. It'll start to erode. If we do a lot of the right things for the wrong reasons, it starts to affect our lives in a way we can't really see until it's too late. We have to change our ways. We have to change our deeds. And then we have to change our hearts. The beautiful thing is that if we'll change our ways and our deeds, if we'll change the what and the why, it'll change the heart, the human heart. It may be turning towards corruption or turning towards violence or turning towards anger or bitterness or malice. And if we'll change our ways and deeds and we'll throw ourselves at the mercy of Christ and repent of, of our sins, it'll actually change our hearts. It'll correct our hearts. And Jeremiah 7 verse 8 says, But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. You keep running outside the cat door instead of going to the person who can help you. Verse 9, do you steal, do you murder, do you commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in the house called by my name and say we are delivered so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. The warning is specific. The warning is very clear. That we don't get to just go out and live any way we want and do whatever we want, to behave any way we want, to speak any way we want, and then come in here and smile and hold our Bible and uh, eat the candy that's passed around and, and, and share with one another and then walk out the doors and go right back to that lifestyle. The people of Judah are being called out for it, and I believe God is calling the church at large out for the way that we behave. That the way we live and operate and behave outside of the context of the church matters in the context of church. So we have to stop trusting in deceitful words. This warning isn't just about changing behavior, but it's a heart reformation. It's an overall transformation from the inside out. The people of Jeremiah's day received Josiah's reform, but they rejected Jeremiah's uh, preaching. They accepted Josiah's reform. Yeah, I'll change my immediate outward behavior. I won't do that right now in front of you. But they rejected Jeremiah's call to change their hearts. Their actions were good for a moment, but the roots were still rotten. They were content with changing actions, but not their heart's motivation. And actions are merely an extension of the heart. Everything we say and do starts with our hearts. Is our heart's posture to truly love and to serve God? If so, then that will be evident in the way that we treat the people around us. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it's the source of life. And we've got to guard our hearts and protect it from corruption, from seeds of, of, of racism or anger or bitterness or malice or adultery or whatever might just slowly deposit itself into our lives. And when it's left unchecked, it starts to spread. And a lot of us, though, we're content with the outside. But what God wants to do this morning is he wants to turn our attention inward. What's going on inside of our hearts? You're the only one that can answer that question. We can ask God, as the psalmist did, to, to comb through our hearts, to show us if there's any ways that are displeasing to God. But we can't be content with just the outward. Well, I'm not physically doing this, but my thoughts are still this way, and my heart's still this way. We've got to look inside. And I've, I've done a lot of weddings over the years. And I just did one a couple of uh, months ago in Chattanooga, and they had a wedding coordinator, and there was a lot of money spent, and, and, and I know because they had asked me a year in advance, so there was a lot of planning, colors, and coordination, and you know, when I do weddings and I get done with one, I'm like, did that really take a year to plan? <laughs> like, I could have done that in 10 minutes, but we put all this work into a wedding, 
And what I try to do if the timing is right and the, the people are available is before the ceremony, I try to sit down with the groom and, and then go to the bride and just remind them that all of this prep work and all of this stuff is, is, is great, but be in the moment, enjoy the day, don't lose sight of what you're doing, but more importantly, remember that everything changes after this and it gets incrementally harder after this day. All that stuff that you thought was hard planning and preparing, that was the easy stuff. Where do you have to figure out where the knives and forks go or who leaves the seat up or who's going to take the trash out? Like those are the hard things. Marriage, the ceremony, that's the pretty thing. That's the easy thing. But marriage as a whole is hard. And a beautiful ceremony means nothing if the marriage doesn't last. It's just wasted money. Beginnings are important. But an image without substance is a lie. A beginning without continuation is a lie. And all sacrificial rituals are useless if the covenant requirements of obedience and morality are ignored. And Jeremiah is not talking about a wedding ceremony. He's talking about a marriage. He's not talking about the pomp and the circumstance. He's talking about the day-to-day grind. He's warning about how hard life is when walking with Christ and how there's consistent temptation to stray from biblical morality and it's always waiting on us And I feel like the church is never in so much danger as when it's popular and millions of people are saying, I'm a Christian, but they're actually not living like Christ. Jeremiah is saying their religious performance was impeccable, but their everyday life was rotten. And I never want that to be said about us. Well, they had a great service, had good songs, started on time. Music wasn't too loud, wasn't too soft. Played a song I knew, played some I didn't. Sermon was okay, better last week, but it was okay today. It was kind of funny, but not as funny. And it was, you know, hit, but that didn't quite connect. But it was fine. Communion's great. We prayed. I left feeling good. We checked all the boxes. Then we go out and we live the way we want and we act the way we want and we behave the way we want. If all of the facades are impeccable but the inside doesn't change, it's all for nothing. And Jeremiah is warning us about authenticity. He's warning us about repentance, which is the only way back to the cross. Because actions mean that we change our behaviors. If we desire to live like Christ, then something must shift and it starts in our hearts. It starts in our hearts In order to correct our ways, we have to change our ways and actions, and and that has to infuse itself in our hearts, and so we have to be willing. And that's what we're going to do before we leave today, is we're going to take a moment just to reflect on our lives, to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to remind us of ways that may be displeasing to Him. And every Sunday, we always walk through a prayer of confession before we receive communion. But today, I want it to have deeper meaning and more context. I want us to imagine when we pray this prayer of confession that Jeremiah is standing at the doors, He's a lobby greeter today, and and he's got his Jeremiah robe on and probably a beard and maybe long hair. And I don't know if he carried a staff and had sandals, but we can imagine. And he's standing at the door, and as you walked in today, he's warning you, hey, heads up. It's not just about what we do here for the hour that we spend together. It's not just the ceremony. You can have it all down. You could have practiced it well. How are we going to live outside of the context of a church? Behaviors, actions heart's motivation. Can we work on that this morning? If you would bow your head and close your eyes. Before I pray a prayer confession, I want to read this quote from Thomas Kempis. This is a a several, maybe a century old quote, but it rings true today. He says, Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comforts 
few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as drinking the cup of suffering. Many that revere his miracles, few that follow him in the indignity of the cross. Father in heaven, may we be people who are willing to walk with you in thought, word, deed, and action. God, I ask this morning if there's any waywardness inside of me, if there's any sin or malice or hatred or bitterness or anger, would you work on that today? Would you comb through the vast recesses of my soul, look at every dark corner and space in my life and see, is there anything unholy in me? Is there anything that's displeasing to you in my life? Would you bring it to my attention? Give me the strength to trust in you and not in my own understanding. So Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to the cross to save us from sin, to save us from ourselves. So we ask for your grace and your mercy this morning to bring about a, a heart of repentance, to soften our hearts, to crush the pride and the hubris so that we may humbly walk with you. With every head bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, starts with the right relationship with Christ. And if we don't know Christ, it becomes difficult to go and ask for forgiveness. And so we first have to know the forgiver. So with every head bowed and eyes closed, if there's anybody in this space that says, I don't know Jesus, but I'd like to give my heart to him today. I'd like to turn my life over to him today. I want you just to put your hand up. You can put it right back down. I'm the only one looking. If that's you, say, I need Jesus today. I've walked away from Christ and I need Jesus in my life today. We invite him into our hearts to lead us, to guide us. But it starts with a decision. It starts with a catalyst of change. So for all of us in this room, we're in a place where we either have committed our life to Christ and, and, and we've got to flesh this out, or, or maybe you're still trying to decide if Christ is for you. I need you to know if that's you, Christ is for you. He loves you unconditionally, went to the cross for you, and desires to be with you. So, Father, in this moment, we've chosen to follow you. So may we live and walk in your ways, serving you, allowing everything in our hearts and our lives to honor and to glorify you. So forgive us our sins as we forgive one another. Forgive us where we've messed up, where we failed. Forgive us where we've sinned in thought, word, deed, and action, where we've sinned in things we've said and done. We've sinned by ways we should have said and should have done. Forgive us, Lord. We thank you that you keep forgiving us as often as we ask you. Move the sin as far as the east is from the west. And so we praise you for that. In Jesus' name.